All right, well, good morning, good morning. Great to see you. Isn't that vision wonderful? I don't know about you, but it gets me excited. Hey, if you haven't picked up, what did I just do with it? I had a brochure here. Here it is. If you haven't picked up one of these or you haven't seen one of these, this is our vision document. It's the similar content to the video, but in printed format. We would love you to pick up one of these at the Connect desk this morning. There's a bit of extra info in there um, that's not in the video, such as our timeline and some uh, of our partnerships. But we'd love you to pick this up. Um, we spent a lot of money putting, putting effort into this because we realized that when you want to communicate something, you want people to capture it in our city and in our time, you need to do that well. And so we put effort into this, and I would hate for them to sit in a box and collect dust, which they're doing in the office at the moment. So please, if you haven't got one of these, take it, use this to inform your prayers, pray through the steps of this vision. We would love you to do that. Can I just also say quickly, thank you to the band. I love that song. Um, is it Defender? Is that it? I love it. It feels like this aggressive kind of like anthem or, I don't know, war cry or something. So thank you for picking that. That's, that's really good. Hey, I'm going um, to pray for us. Let me just preface this before we get into the word this morning is that um, for me, this, this week sermon prep has been very different to any other sermon I've, I've ever preached. Uh, partly because uh, I've been really busy. We've had an international guest in town that we've spent three intense days with, days and night, touring him around our city. But partly also because as I came to write my message yesterday, um, and, and we're going to be talking about prayer, one of the things that um, have been personally convicted is that I spend more time planning than I do praying, more time preparing to preach, and more time preaching than I do praying. And so for the first time ever, I've tried to reverse the ratios and spend more time praying than I have planning for this sermon, um, which means it might be a bit rusty. I don't tell you that to preface this and say, it's going to be a bad sermon, because I don't really care if it's a bad sermon or not. Well, maybe I do just a little bit. But, um, but um, I, I say that to you because this will be messy. I've just got, like, honestly, I've got notes and diagrams, all this kind of stuff. So who knows? It's going to be a choose-your-own-adventure this morning. Uh, so I feel like I need some help, um, and I've been praying for you yesterday that God would speak to every single one of you. And so my expectation is this morning that if you walk through these doors this morning, God wants to work in your life. He wants to move you deeper this year into prayer, to understanding what it looks like to depend on Him. And so I'm going to pray that He would do that right now in each of our hearts, my own included. And expect that in the next half an hour or so, God is going to work powerfully through our church to bring deep change in us by the power of His Spirit. Yeah, so let me pray. Please join me. God, this morning we want to pause and stop amidst what has been such a busy 2016 and such a busy 2014 and 15. And confess that so often our activity gets ahead of who we are in Christ. I know for myself, God, that so often I'm busy planning and preparing and not praying. And God, we need you. We need you more than we care to admit and let on. Our culture calls us to puff our chest out in proud self-sufficiency. But you say to us in your word that you oppose the proud and you give grace to the humble. And so today, God, we want to humble ourselves as individuals, as a church. And we want to plead with you to work. God, where there is a good desire in us to be more prayerful, would you fuel that? God, we know that nothing changes just from good intentions. And so please work by the power of your spirit. God, I, I, I expect you to work today because your word is powerful. It is living and active. Your spirit is at work. And so God, we pray work this morning. 
bring the change in us that we want to see in this city. A personal awakening for every single person in this room. Maybe now, church, take a moment to echo your own prayer to God that he would speak to you now as his word is read and explained. Thank you, God, that you are the God who bends your ear towards the prayers of your people that you lean in. God, answer. Answer, we pray, in the powerful name of Jesus. And those who agreed said in one loud voice, Amen. Amen. Well, um, that video has outlined for us what our five-year vision is. And I want to give you a quick catch-up and recap and evaluation of where we've been over the last 12 months. Um, they say that, I don't know who they are, but they, the experts, say that you, you always tend to overestimate what you can do in one to two years and underestimate what you can do in five. And so what we've seen over the last 12 months is that we've had a vision to do three things, really. We've, we want to make disciples, we want to multiply gospel communities, and we want to plant churches. And really, that's what we've been doing since day one here at Anchor, as we seek to make much of Jesus, make disciples, multiply gospel communities, and plant churches. And so this year, our vision, sorry, last year, our vision was to baptize 15 new believers. And we had the joy and privilege of baptizing seven people last year, some of those who have come to faith a little bit earlier than last year, and some of those who are fresh to the faith themselves. We had the privilege of launching three new gospel communities this year. So we launched, we've just launched Randwick. We snuck that one in before the 12-month mark. We launched out Redfern with Steve and Rochelle, and we launched out, what was the other one we launched out? Stanmore. Stanmore. Oh, Stanmore and St. Peter's as well. We launched out four gospel communities this year. So our vision was that we would launch out 10. We didn't quite get there. We launched out for gospel communities this year, and then finally to plant churches. And so last week we introduced you to our five new interning couples. Our hope is that we would invest in these young men and their wives, that um, we would identify them, equip them, and unleash them on the mission that God has for them. And so we're excited about that. We've been setting aside money for a future church plant. So just so you know, even after investing $10,000 last year in other church plants, we gave some money to church planning in West Hollywood with Collective Church, our brothers Casey and Lorenzo. We've invested in church planning up on the Gold Coast in a place called Kumara with uh, Pastor Adam Ramsey and Pastor Darren Dakers. And I think they're actually launching this week. So Pray for them up at Liberty Church Kumara and Liberty Church Gold Coast. So we've given 10K last year towards church planting, but we've also set aside, we've got provisioned for what we hope to do, $50,000. And our hope is that at the end of this year, we'll have something to the tune of around $80,000, $85,000 set aside towards future church planting. Over the next five years, we need to raise about $250,000 towards that. And so we've... We've started something. Something's going really well. We don't even need to really try hard. If we just keep setting aside our 9% as a church, we will get to a quarter of a million dollars like that. Other things, we're going to need to really dig in and work hard. And so you might be thinking, what do we do with the gap between the vision that we had for last year, some of the numeric goals that we set, and the reality that we've experienced this year? It could, could be easy for us to be discouraged around some of those things, to perceive them as failures. So here, here's what I think we ought to do as a church as we respond to maybe that gap between vision and reality. The first is that we, we issue ourselves grace. Right? This, this is never really about numbers. As a church, we want to we have a culture of grace about us and we want to value people over performance. And those numeric goals that we set were never really there to drive performance. They were there to drive us towards people because we believe that behind every number is a person and every person has a story that Jesus wants to redeem for his glory. And so we issue ourselves grace in that. The second thing we need to do is reevaluate. Were we too ambitious in setting those goals? Maybe we were. 
You know, when we set those goals, Anchor had doubled in size every six months since we launched. And so as we planned that trajectory, we actually didn't, that wasn't just shooting numbers out of the dark. That was saying, God, if you continue to do what you've been doing since day one, this is where we anticipate we will be at. And so maybe we were slightly ambitious. Maybe God's trying to humble us. But maybe in this, God's actually revealing to us, and this is where the leadership team feels we're at as we've been thinking and praying, and, um, and Alnado's been leading so well in his oversight of gospel communities. One of the things that we've noticed about multiplying new gospel communities is that the thing by and large that has driven us over the last two and a half years has been our groups are too big. You will have heard Jeff say that their experience at, um, at Kensington was the group was too big for the small little apartment they were meeting in. And that has been the impetus to multiply new gospel communities. And so as the staff have been praying and thinking about what it looks like to evaluate that part of our vision, we've been compelled to put two other measures above just size being the thing that drives us. And in fact, you'll have heard both of those, the two things that I'm about to say mentioned by Jeff and Justin this morning in their interview. And those are a vision for some kind of mission and leadership. A vision for some kind of mission and leadership. We want those to be the two things, particularly vision for mission driving out the multiplication of our gospel communities. And so as Justin and Greta share their heart for the East, seeing those who don't know Jesus come to know him, that's what we want by and large, first and foremost, to drive the multiplication of our groups. Now it might be that our groups are too big and need to multiply. But the thing that would temper that multiplication would be, has the group prayed? Do they have vision for an area that they want to reach with by the gospel? Is there leadership that is championing that vision, ready to step out into it? And so that's, that's caused us, that, that gap between vision and reality has caused the staff to stop and pray and consider what God would have for us in this as we move forward. And that's one adjustment that we think that we're going to make. The, the other thing that um, we've spoken about last year is that we wanted to roll out some cultural values for our teams. And we're really excited about this as a staff. We've been working on this for close to six months now as we have thought about what type of church do we want to create? What does it look like for our teams to create a magnetic culture to them that it wouldn't really matter what that team is doing together, that people just want to be a part of it because it's such a good team to be a part of. And so we've been rolling out these um, cultural values over the last couple of weeks to our interns and across our staff. And just so you know, our staff are trying to think about how we will embody these as a staff team as well. This is not something we're expecting other teams to do and not us. We want our whole church to live these out. And so the five cultural... Oh, and we've also been working with an organizational psychologist. It's actually Kat, Kat's dad, Kat Sprouse, Kat Nielsen's dad, who's a, a, an organizational psychologist he helps organizations think about bringing cultural change. And so we've consulted with him in this process and come up with five cultural values that we want to see across every team at Anchor Church, be that our kids team, our worship team, our bump in as a GC, the morning tea hospitality team, our prayer team, whatever team you're on, we want to see these cultural values as a part of the, those teams. So they are honor. So we want to create a culture of honor in our teams that we would brag on each other, as you saw Brian make Jeff do over Justin and Greta this morning. I love that, Brian. Well done. I'm going to brag on you right now, bro. Good work. So honor. We want a culture of honor in our team. Secondly, we want a culture of expectancy. That if we worship a God who is able, who is powerful, then we ought to expect Him to work. And so we want to be good at asking the question, what am I expecting God to do? We want to anticipate success. The third cultural value is we want to pursue excellence, not for excellence itself, but because God and people deserve our best. We don't want to offer God our sloppy leftovers. We want to love, love our city by offering them our best in service of our city for the sake of Jesus. So we want to pursue excellence. You notice we didn't just put excellence. It's not a benchmark. It's a journey. Pursue excellence. Fourthly, we want a culture of grace that we value people over performance. That counterbalances that desire for excellence 
that we're not ruthless about it, that when there's failure, there's grace to meet us in that. And we're really good at applying that to ourselves. We need to be really good at applying that to others. And finally, and this is probably my favorite one and the one I personally probably need to grow in more than, maybe not, I don't know, who knows. But fun, the final cultural value is fun. It was going to be D-A-N-C-E, um, but I'm just not there yet. Uh, you know, like I just, maybe we'll get there one day. But um, just so you know, the staff have been thinking about how we embody these Brian wants to just have parties in the office, give people early marks, and celebrate each other's birthdays with cake. And so we, we're trying to develop a culture of fun on our own staff team. And we want all of our team leaders to begin to roll these out across our team this year. So we're really excited about what that might look like this year in 2017. So what has God got in store for us in 2017? The answer is more of the same. We're going to continue to make disciples. We're going to continue to multiply gospel communities. We're going to continue to prepare ourselves and posture ourselves for future church planting. We're going to roll out these cultural values. We're going to launch our internship and residency program. But there's a difference this year that, that we feel that we want to emphasize. And the difference is that we want to do this with a different focus, and the focus is prayer. The focus is prayer. You'll notice even if you look at our, our vision document in there, in the timeline, one of the things that we put in there is that in 2017, we want to see thriving, passionate prayer meetings. Now, I know many of you um, came to me last year and said, why did, you, why did you put prayer meetings in year two? Why not put them in year one? And this was my answer to you guys. Because the staff and I, we've been discouraged about the prayer meetings that we've been running that no one was showing up to. And so we wanted to build up we wanted some momentum in this so that we wouldn't launch new prayer meetings and have no one attend again. And we've seen God work in that. We've had a number of people whom God has stirred a desire to pray. Our after-gathering prayer is humming, and, and you guys need to use that more. They're great people to pray for you. But we've, we've launched some pre-gathering prayer meetings in the green room out the back. And if you realize that, people were praying for you this morning as you came in, that you would feel welcomed and loved, that the stranger would feel at home here. So if you felt welcomed, God answered a prayer this morning. And so we want to, so let, let me just go back there. So the answer that we gave you last year, we felt like we wanted to do it right. And there's something good about that, right? Taking time to not just jump into something, but to launch it well. But the reality is, when you put prayer in the middle of a vision, you get it back to front. And so I just want to confess to you, church, that I think we, we put that in the wrong place. Because it feels like last year we flogged ourselves with activity and busyness and planning. And there was anxiety around multiplication and all this kind of stuff. And I feel like a lot of that came because we were striving and not praying. And so I think we should have put prayer as a foundational pin in that vision. Year one, we begin with this even if it comes at the expense of all the activity. Because remember, the thing that we said in that vision, Jesus promises without me, we, you can do nothing. Unless the Lord builds, the laborer builds in vain. That's not to say that we haven't prayed this year. It's not to say I haven't prayed. I have prayed this year. Our staff have prayed for, for every single person in this church who doesn't know Jesus to encounter him and be moved from death to life. We've committed ourselves to praying for your friends and family. That's not to say we haven't done it at all. But there's something of emphasis when you say, prayer's going to happen later. And I think I want to own that as a leader and say that was the wrong decision. And so here today, I want to hit the reset button as a church and dial the clock back a bit and say, we need to go back to the basics and remind ourselves that we are entirely dependent on God this vision is way bigger than we can achieve. Even by all of the wonderful, gifted people that God has given us, the effort that we put in, this vision is way bigger than we can achieve. And so we need God's help in this. And so I was, um, I was convicted by a quote by, um, by A.W. Tozer who's, who says this. He says, To desire revival... And to neglect devotion and prayer is to wish one way and walk the other. To desire for revival 
and neglect devotion and prayer is to wish one way and walk another. And if I'm honest, there's been a quota of that in my life last year. I don't know about you, speak for myself. The Spirit will convict you if that's true for you as well. That we would talk about mission and revival and awakening. That we would even have this catchphrase that we throw around so often. The church moves forward on its knees. But have I been on my knees? Have I personally been committing this vision to God? And not just expecting that someone else is going to do it. I think one of the weaknesses of Vision Sunday sermons is that they, they, they feel so big. It's like, this is what we're going to do this year. We're going to change the world. And whilst I love the ambitiousness, if that's even a word, of a vision like that, the problem is you can leave a vision talk feeling like someone else is going to make that happen. The very first sermon we preached at Anchor was a message from Luke 15 about what the gospel is. And we had this conviction that if we wanted to see an awakening in our city, that that first had to begin in our own hearts and own lives and own church. And so everything I'm going to say this morning is for you. This is not for Anchor Church. Because Anchor Church is nothing without individuals like you. This is for you. This is for me. And so my prayer is that God would work this morning in stirring our hearts to pursuing God deeper this year in prayer. And so we're going to look at two things from James chapter 4 and 5 this morning. What have I left out here? Heaps of stuff. Let, let me just, let me, before we get to James, um, I'm, so Brian and I were just chatting out the back this morning. He's like, Brian, I don't even know what I'm saying today. He's just encouraging me. And um, one of the things he encouraged me in this morning was to lead out of a sense of vulnerability. And so uh, I, I want to share this with you as well, is that um, there, have been, there have been seasons this year where I've prayed and God hasn't answered. A couple of weeks ago, we, we prayed for... Um, Benny, who's got a really bad back. He's had a bad back. He's been flat in bed. He's been missing work. He has to go in for surgery. We prayed that God would heal his back. And there was some, there was some healing that happened, but it wasn't physical. And I was like really disappointed afterwards. I was like, God, I, I really felt like you were going to heal Benny that day, and, and you didn't. And so what happens in our hearts when we encounter that sense of disappointment, it can lead to us going, what's the point? I'm not sure prayer really works. I've been praying and praying and praying and praying and nothing seems to happen. I don't know if that's where you're at this morning that you think, yeah, another sermon on prayer. All right. I'll start praying for a week and we'll see what happens. And... But my hope is that we'll get to the end of today and be like Jacob who clings to God until he gives the blessing. There's a quote from D.A. Carson that says, um, he, he, in his book, A Call to Spiritual Reformation, he says, what's the most pressing need in the church? Is it better evangelism? Is it biblical theology? Is it better preaching? Is it holiness and purity? He says, yes, all of those things are important, but the most important thing in the church today is prayer. He says this, is it not true that by and large we are better at organizing than agonizing? Better at administrating than interceding. Better at fellowship than fasting. Better at entertainment than worship. Better at theological articulation than spiritual adoration. Better, God help me, at preaching than praying. You know what, church? There are so many good things that God has done in the last couple of years at Anchor. You've heard some of it this morning from the stage. We don't want to deny that. We have seen people come from death to life. Thank you, Jesus, for that work. But there rests a holy discontent in our heart that God wants to do more in our church and in our city. And maybe one of the reasons he hasn't is because we just haven't asked. So let's go to James chapter 4. If you've got a Bible now, go to James chapter 4, verse 2. 
This is what James says to a church that is squabbling and fighting and coveting each other's property and murdering, probably metaphorically, each other to get what their desires want. James says this to the church in James chapter 4, verse 2. You desire and do not have, so you murder, you covet, you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Now here's the reason you do that. You don't have because you do not ask. You do not receive because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. As I mentioned earlier this week, we had an international guest in town, um, a a guy who's thinking about international church planning, wanted to come to Sydney. And and so we toured around our city and and showed him all of these places. And on Wednesday, I thought I was going to have a car, but it turned out that um, Tash needed the car, and so we had to make some plans. And I was just kind of sitting there thinking, I'm just, who am I going to ring? I should ask someone. I should ring someone. I should ring someone. And Brian's like, you know what? I'm going to ring, I'm going to ring a friend of mine who's got a really nice car, a really nice car. I'm like, he's not going to give us that car. That's, a, that's an amazing car. He's like, bro, you, you ask not, you have not. Okay. All right, and just so you know, Brian's spiritual gift is probably asking <laughs> and negotiating. And so that's a brag, bro. It's a, I'm bragging on you there. And so Brian rings. I'm sitting in the car. He asks, asks this dude for the car. And he's like, yeah, sure, you can borrow the car. He looks at me. He's like, see? <laughs> and here's the thing. I would never have made that phone call. Never. I would, have, I would have probably rung the person with the car that's wheel was about to fall off because I, was, I don't want to crash someone else's car. I don't want them to feel bad about saying no to me. You do not have because you do not ask. And so on Wednesday, we cruised around Sydney in an amazingly cool car. Now, Brian also did say that um, he just wanted to make sure that it was clear that he was the one who had been asked to drive the car for the whole day and not me as well. Spiritual gifts play there as well. You ask not because you... Sorry, you have not because you ask not. Why don't we ask? We don't ask because we're so self-sufficient. As a culture, what we're told is that you need to fight for yourself. You need to be independent. You chart your own course. It's a culture that tells us to puff out our chest in bravado and self-sufficiency and say, I'm not dependent on anyone. No one will take advantage of me because I'm strong. The gospel is the exact opposite of that. Just a bit later on in James chapter 4, God says, James rather says that God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. God opposes the proud. Should not that squash any sense of self-sufficiency? That somehow we think that we can do this on our own? Church, if we want to see any change in this culture of prayer, we have to begin by recognizing that we are entirely dependent on God. That we cannot do this. Despite our giftedness, despite how freaking amazing that Redeemer song, whatever, what's that song called again? Defender. You know, like despite how good our band is, despite how good the flyers on your chairs are, despite how great our gospel community leaders are, we've got no hope. In fact, maybe there is a little bit of hope. Maybe you can add the ingredients and have great worship, good preaching, good kids' ministry, good design, and create a good church. I don't want to do that. I don't know about you. I want to see a church where God does something that just could not possibly have been achieved by human effort. Not by our strength, not by our might. The first step is to surrender ourselves to God and realize that we're not self-sufficient, that we're entirely dependent on Him. So the first reason we don't ask is we're too self-sufficient. We think we got it. The second reason we don't ask is that probably deep down, we don't believe prayer works. You know, that experience of praying and not having answered prayer and feeling discouraged, and it just leads to us quitting. You know, I wonder if you've... um, ever taken the time to apply that fruit-to-root tool that we use to, to your prayerlessness? 
I, I did that yesterday and brainstormed out a number of ways that that could play out in false belief. Prayerlessness is bad fruit in our lives. What does that say about who we are? If we see prayerless fruit, prayerless activity in our lives, well, it might say that we don't really believe that we're a child of God. It might say that we don't feel listened to. It might say that we feel like God has abandoned us. If that's what we believe about ourselves, then what does that say about what God has done? Well, that God has ignored me, that God hasn't listened to me, that God hasn't acted powerfully. What does that say about who God is? Well, it says that God powerless and impotent and distant and doesn't care. Is that the God we worship? It's not. And so we need to turn that round and begin to gospel ourselves and say, no, I am adopted. I am a child of God. God is listening. He is present. He is near. In fact, Psalm 116 says that God inclines his ear towards the prayers of his people, that God leans in. This is what God is doing when you pray. He's leaning in. He's listening. Let that image soak in. And stir your heart to prayer. That's the God we worship. The gospel, the good news is that we can approach the throne of grace with confidence. Because Jesus is our great high priest. He is our mediator who whispers in the Father's ear, This is my child. I've paid for them. So when we fail to ask... Maybe deep down we believe that God is distant and hasn't really adopted us and we need to gospel our hearts. If that's you, just be real in your gospel triplet. Be real and say, you know what? I haven't been praying this prayerlessness. as bad fruit in my life. Would you help me dig on where that's coming from? What false beliefs I'm believing about God that's preventing prayerlessness in my life? And so sometimes we do not ask because we just don't believe that prayer will work. But sometimes we do ask. Sometimes we do ask and we still don't receive. Now, there's a number of reasons why God doesn't answer prayer. The one that James hits on here is that our motives are wrong. You ask for the wrong reasons. You ask that you might spend it on your own passions. And if you've ever done that, you've been praying for something for God and to, to God in the middle of the prayer, you have this conviction that this is more about your glory than his. And so you quickly confess it, like, God, oh man, I'm, I'm sorry, that was, that was really about my glory and not yours. But I still want you to do it, so I'm going to confess it now. And you end up secretly, it's like, I've got him now. Confessed it. He's going to have to answer it now because I got rid of that, that impure motive. But really, deep down, it's about your glory and not his. Just me? Anyone else experienced that in the past? You're all liars. You have. Sometimes we don't receive because we don't ask. Sometimes we don't receive because we ask with the wrong motives. And so maybe it means that we just need to stop asking so much and just pause, spend some time listening, saying, God, what do you want in this? Not my will be done, your will be done. Ask that God would help you to pray in accordance with his will. Read the prayers of Paul and say, God, make my prayers like this. Remember, youth group kids, they're the best at praying. We'd get to the end of discussion group and say, all right, anyone want to pray about something? And be like, I've got my grand final coming up. Pray that I win my grand final. My cat has got, you know, this fur balls. And, um, you know, my grandma's sick. And, um, you know, all of these things. And it's not like God doesn't care about those things. But they just seem so short-sighted. I mean, I think God does care about cats' hairballs, but probably not as much as he cares about seeing Jesus shine in their life, seeing their friends and family come to know him, seeing the gospel applied. Maybe we need to look at the priority out of our prayer list and reevaluate whether or not these things that we're bringing before God are really just our list or whether we've stopped and paused and spent time to listen to God. So I take James... 
for two to mean. On the flip side, the positive implication for this is that God does want us to ask. And he wants us to ask with the right motives. That's what I take that verse to mean. The, the negative is you don't receive because you don't ask and you don't ask with the right motives. The positive is God wants us to ask and he wants us to ask with kingdom incentive, with kingdom, kingdom motivation. What happens when you don't ask? You don't receive. What happens when you do ask? Because James goes on to paint a picture of that as well. In James chapter 5, verse 16, this is what he says about prayer. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. That word powerful, the prayer of a righteous person is powerful. That word powerful means full of power. That's what it means. That your prayer is full of power. That it achieves much. That it works. It's alive. It energizes. It accomplishes things. Your prayers are not an intrusion to God's purposes and plan. They're an instrument in it. Prayer is powerful. And to make the point, James highlights the life and the story of Elijah, who prayed for three and a half years that there would be no rain and drought, and God listened and dried up the rain clouds and then prayed again, and it rained on the land. James's point is this. Elijah is just a guy. He's just a dude. There's nothing special about him. Yes, he's a hero of the Jewish faith. Yes, he's a prayer warrior. Yes, people point to his example. But James's point is that you can pray like this legend of prayer in the Scriptures. Because in the end, it wasn't Elijah who stopped the rain. It was God. And don't we worship the same God that Elijah did? He is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. It's the same God. You can pray like Elijah did. That's James's point, that prayer is powerful, that you have the same access to the ear of God that Elijah did. Church, if we want to see lives radically transformed by Jesus, if we want to see people come to know the hope of the gospel, if we want to see people set free from addiction, if we want to see victory over sin that has been squashing our spiritual fervor for the Lord, you know what instrument God is going to use to achieve that? Your prayer. Your prayers. God is beckoning us to ask Him and to ask with kingdom-centered motives, but to ask Him in faith, trusting that He is the one who works. I heard a quote recently um, that says, Revival is the Christian life turned up. I like it. Revival is the Christian life turned up. It's an awakening of people's desire to pursue God with everything. It's a nurturing of that desire for fervent prayer. For being ruthless with the sin in our life. For being bold in our proclamation of the gospel. Revival is simply the Christian life turned up. It's not complicated. Every single history, uh, revival in history has prayer as its foundation. Almost every single awakening in the history of the church has prayer as its foundation. From, from the first revival that we see in the pages of Acts where the disciples are praying in the upper room and the Spirit descends on them and Peter stands up in Acts chapter 3 to preach the gospel and how many people get saved in one sermon? 3,000. 
to the Great Awakenings, to the Welsh Revivals, to the Fullerton Street Revival in New York City, to the revivals in Korea. They've all been fueled by prayer. Every great move of God, every great move of God starts with prayer. In September 23rd of 1857, a single man by the name of Jeremiah Lanfear opened the doors of the Dutch Reformed Church on the corner of Fullerton Street in New York City for a prayer meeting. He'd been advertising the prayer meeting for three months by distributing flyers and leaflets at local businesses. And at 12 p.m., he opened the doors. There was a sign out the front that said prayer meeting. And for half an hour, no one came. And at 12.30, one person came in and started to pray with him, and then another. And by the end of that time, there had been six people who showed up for prayer. The next week, there were 20 people that showed up. The week after that, there were 40 people that showed up. And then a crazy event happened in the history, the financial history of America. There was a huge financial crisis that hit. People lost their jobs left, right, and center. Banks closed. And the very next week, 3,000 people showed up to that prayer meeting. And then all of a sudden, these prayer meetings were spreading across the whole of America as people got on their knees and pleaded with God that he would work. And it said as a result of that awakening to prayer, more than one million people gave their life to Jesus. A million people in the years that followed the Fulton Street Revival. You know how that started? One man, Jeremiah Lanphier. He'd been burdened with a church that was dying. The Dutch Reformed Church said to him, this is the last step. This is the last ditched attempt to revive this thing. Otherwise, we're going to shut the doors, sell the building and move on. He'd been praying Nothing had been happening. And his solution was to get on his knees personally and pray. And then to call others corporately to join him. If we want to see an awakening in this city, that awakening first has to begin in our own hearts, our own lives, and our own church. Think of the story of Jim Simbola from the book Fresh Wind, Fresh Fire who again in New York City planted a church. Weekly offering was $85. I mean, that's, you know, like pastors, you live, live by faith as you plant a church, but the, I mean, that 85 bucks, that's not much. He was discouraged, disheartened. And what did he do? Turned to prayer. He rocked up one Sunday and he said to his church, from this day forward, the thermometer of grace in this church will be the prayer meeting the Tuesday night prayer meeting. And if you know the story of Brooklyn Tabernacle, you'll know that there has been thousands and thousands of people whose lives have been radically transformed by a church that got on its knees and prays. Arnaldo, who grew up in Brooklyn, will tell you the stories. He's witnessed it with his own eyes. The church really does move forward on its knees. The question is, am I willing to get down on my knees and pray? Or am I just going to wait for someone else to do it? Awakening first begins with us, in our hearts, in our lives. Imagine what it would be, church, if, if this year we committed to go hard after God. If we committed not to miss a prayer meeting. If we committed to pray when people posted that thing in your gospel community Facebook to pray for their friend, if you didn't just like it or send a message saying, praying for you, bro, and then didn't actually do it. Imagine if we committed to going hard after God, to pursue him, that he would pour out his spirit, that we would plead with him, that his favor would rest on this church. Imagine what would happen. You know, I believe with the deepest conviction of my heart, that if we can overcome our spiritual, our own spiritual apathy, if we can overcome our lack of faith and our laziness and our self-sufficiency and our lack of dependence, that this 
city of Sydney will see the fires of revival blow through it. I truly believe that. That's what we're giving our lives to here at Anchor. What would happen in 12 months' time if we did what Jacob did in Genesis 32 and wrestled with God and clung to him and said, I'm not letting you go until you bless us. I think if we did that, church, we would see people come to faith this year. God can do more in a day that we could possibly hope to do in a thousand years with all our planning and scheming and strategy. I think we would see people set free from addiction. I think we would see people have a greater awakening to the power of the gospel in their life. I think we'll see vision fueled for new mission across our city. I think we'll see generosity increase if we would just get on our knees and cling to God and say, God, we are not letting you go until you pour out your spirit. God, we're not letting you go until you bless us, until your favor rests upon us. Does anyone want the favor of God on this church? You know, I think something, something struck me in a line that John Tyson said. He's a New York City church planter. There's been a lot of New York City church planters in this sermon, but he's actually a butcher from Adelaide. Um, and I was listening to a podcast of his, and he said, you know what, church plants too often... Are more concerned about the attention they get from their website and social media than they are about the favor of God resting on their church. That kind of struck me because I, look, we, we put a good effort into social media and website. And I don't think our strategy, I don't think our confidence lies there. But I wonder maybe if that's true for, for some people here that. What we really care about is Anchor Church, the name, people knowing that I go to Anchor Church, when what we really ought to care about is the favor of God resting on this church. That begins with me. It begins with our staff team. It begins with our gospel community leaders. And so I want to call every person who's in leadership today to make a commitment to get on your knees, to pray. Some practical things that we're hoping to do this year is that we want to see our gospel communities doing prayer walks again. It was something we did in the early days of Anchor. And so Alnado has scheduled in three times this year for your gospel community, all of us together across the church, to prayer walk your neighborhood, your part of the city, and ask God, what do you want us to do here? Who are the people that you're putting in front of us to serve, to love, to bless, to reach out to? To, to be open to God using your gospel community to do something wild and crazy for the sake of the kingdom. And so we're going to prayer walk. We're going to have some prayer meetings this year. I'm really hoping we're going to have an all-night prayer meeting. That's one of the things I want to see happen. We're going to pray all night for a whole, I don't know, 12 hours maybe. Pray all night. We're going to do a prayer and worship night on the first night of our weekend away in a couple of weeks. And there'll be a couple of other things in the calendar that we want to see happening. We've got our pre-gathering prayer meetings happening again before the service, 10 o'clock. If you want to pray, be here in the green room out the back at 10 o'clock for pre-gathering prayer. As I was praying yesterday, how are we doing for time? Is it 12 o'clock? Man. All right, let me quickly, I want Sally to come up and share her story. So maybe Sally will come up now as I share this last story. Yesterday I was praying about this message and um, I was on my knees in the office, leaning against this beautiful leather Chesterfield couch, praying, God, what, what do you want for this? And um, I, I came convicted of that verse from Matthew 9, 37, that the fields are white for harvest. Ask the Lord of the harvest, pray fervently that he would send out workers into the field. And so amidst my sermon prep, I felt that's what I need to do right now. And I stopped and I prayed. I got our database open and I prayed for every single name in this church. Every single one of you who calls anchor, I named your name yesterday and asked that God would send you out as a laborer into this harvest field of our city. If you have children, I prayed for your children. If they can speak, I prayed that they'd be able to speak. If they can't, I prayed that God would make them a mighty warrior for his kingdom. And be my prayer yesterday that that would be true for our church. 
Now, to inspire you with some stories of prayer, I've asked Sally to share some of her own experience of answered prayer in her life. So Sally, tell us a little bit about yourself. What do you do? What's your nine to five? What gospel community are you a part of? Hi there. Um, my name is Sally and I am part of the St. Peter's GC group yeah. um, run by Ellen and Dave. Love them. Um, and I spend my week, uh, it changes. It's mildly chaotic at the best of times. I spend about two days in a bookshop and then the rest of the time I'm running around Sydney, running workshops, teaching um, people how to love art and creativity and, um, and other days painting in a studio just around the corner from here. Yeah, and if you've seen the artwork in our office, that's Sally's handiwork. So maybe tell us a, a couple of stories from your life where you've seen personally answered prayer. Yes. Um, so I've seen uh, numerous answers to prayer in my life, so many that um, I wouldn't even dare to count, so many that I wouldn't remember all of them. Um, and it's been a real pleasure sort of being a part of Anchor because, um, and just sharing my story with Matt and Tash um, as we started here. I was in their, in their GC and um, I guess just seeing how God has worked in my life um, from the time that I said yes to him when I was 13 years old, um, there have been numerous answers to prayer. And I guess there are two that I sort of want to tell you about today. Um, during the last so many years of my life, there have been times that I haven't been able to pay rent and money has come through at um, the most bizarre times, um, always the exact amount that I need. There have been other times when I was going through high school that there were teachers that knew the circumstances of my life without sharing them with them, which meant that they sat down and they prayed with me at a time that I felt very alone. Hmm. Um, and among those, there are two really big answers to prayer that I believe um, yeah, God has worked throughout my life. Um, the first one is joy. Um, and I think that joy has been a theme throughout my entire life. Um, growing up in uh, a little house in Illawong, it was a very dark place. Um, my childhood was quite a tricky Thing. It was very, uh, I don't know how to describe it really, um, other than being hard. Um, and there was abuse and a, a very dysfunctional family um, and a family that didn't know God. Um, and I went to a Christian school and it was there that I learnt about God. I learnt that there was a God that loved me. Um, and God started to plant a seed of joy in my life. When I was 13 years old, I committed my life to him. Um, and even though the circumstances of my life didn't change um, and home life was still really difficult, um, where the circumstances of my life paved a valley of pain and sorrow and suffering, God was paving an even deeper valley to fill with joy mm. in my life. Um, and the reason I speak about joy is because it truly doesn't make any sense. Mm. Um, and there have been times in my life where there's been no reason to celebrate. Um, there should have been no reason to experience joy. But God is good mm. and he's bigger than that. Mm. And he's bigger than the circumstances of our life. And he planted a seed of joy in my life very early on. And it has grown exponentially. And it is always present. And it's there even when it frustratingly shouldn't be. Um, but it is always there, and it is a miracle in my life, and I know that it's not a part of my character, but it's part of me now because that's how God works in me. Mm. Um, and so that's one way that God has answered a prayer in my life um, in a very miraculous way. And I guess the second one that I want to talk to you about is a little bit stranger. Um, as I was growing up, I also uh, had a number of chronic illnesses, um, in year six, I, I spent a few months on crutches because um, they didn't know what it was at the time, but my foot was so deformed that they thought it was broken. It wasn't broken. It was sort of different types of arthritis. Um, and so I, I went around school on crutches quite a bit, and it wasn't uncommon to do so. Um, as I went through high school, uh, 
I saw many doctors, uh, and they had a lot of trouble diagnosing what they thought I had. Um, lots of money spent on medications, specialists, um, and that was a big part of my life. Um, it wore on me because I loved sport and I loved being active and I wanted to do what everyone else at school was doing, uh, but it prevented me from doing so. I was eventually diagnosed with lupus. And for those of you that don't know what that is, it's an autoimmune disease, which is considered to be incurable, um, impossible to get rid of. Um, this meant that I spent my time growing up on um, immune suppressants and steroids. Um, and the funny thing about those medications is that they actually make you almost just as ill. Uh, and so there were many times that I spent in bed, unable to move. And it's a strange thing to say this, but they're actually the times in my life that I feel I grew the most in my faith. What else can you do in bed but pray mm. um, and read your Bible? That's also where I started to draw. It was the beginning of my love with art. Um, and so God continues to use the suffering in our life. Um, and he's capable of making very dark things very beautiful. Um, life carried on and I, uh, as I left school, it still wasn't uncommon for me to use crutches to walk. Um, and I was so ashamed of using crutches that I, I never went out in public if I needed to use them. I would just use them around the house. Um, so it meant that I spent a lot of time inside. Um, there was one year, uh, 2014? 2013, 2013, 2014, where I, um, I was unable to hold a job down. It was as Anchor was actually starting and I was so unwell that I struggled to get to church on Sundays and it really broke my heart because there wasn't really any other place that I wanted to be other than to hear that God was good and I needed to be reminded of it. Um, I was staying with a family at the time that had me rent free uh, and they looked after me. I couldn't hold a job, didn't matter how many interviews I went for and there was way too many. Um, and I guess the seed of self-sufficiency that Matt was talking about started to grow in me. Um, I had prayed since I was 13 that God would take some of this chronic pain away from me, um, and he hadn't. And I'd been okay with that, I guess, until perhaps this time. Um, and that seed of self-sufficiency can grow bitterness in you, um, and it will start sooner or later, to tear you apart. Um, and I really felt that. Um, God took lupus, something that is an impossible thing to change, something that was on every blood test that I ever had. Um, and, but what we know about God is that he's much bigger than the circumstances of our life, mm. that he's bigger than anything our imagination is capable of even conceiving or considering. Um, and... I'd like to tell you that he took it away from me. Mm. Um, yeah. Yes. Um, two years ago on January 2nd, I had two friends under very strange circumstances um, and, and God was very evident in this particular day. Um, and if you ever have any questions, please come and ask me because it doesn't always make sense. Um, but I had two friends just regular people, they just know that God is big. Um, and so they pray big. And that's the big difference here. Um, they prayed for me. And the prayer was long. It was two hours. Um, but at the end, I opened up my eyes. And I couldn't speak. Um, there's not much that I could do, but I wept because I knew that my body had changed. I knew immediately that God had literally rewired my brain and I think even my DNA and he removed it from me and from that day I don't I've never used crutches mm. in fact the next day I went and ate a burger um, I couldn't eat there are certain things that I couldn't eat and I love eating burgers and tacos now because it means that you know God has worked in my life yeah. and I get to celebrate every time yes. I think um God didn't have to do that for me. 
I became a Christian when I was 13 and he saved me, that he didn't owe me anything. Um, But God always wants more for us and he's a big and a generous God and that's something that we need to remind ourselves of because he always wants us to have more, particularly more than I think what we think we deserve. Mm. Um, And so God removed lupus from my life and for my family that are not, uh, that don't love Jesus yet, it's been some pretty strange conversations. Um, and I think something that they, they still assume that I'm unwell um, and that perhaps it's not there. In uh, recent months, I've gone to doctors just for a back problem because I was so excited that I could move. I've been running around and it's given me back issues. Um, but the, the doctor sent me back three times to get a blood test to make sure that it wasn't a mistake. Uh, and I haven't told my doctor what had happened because I just, every time she asks me what's going on, I haven't had the courage to tell her because I am in as much shock as she is. Um, but it doesn't turn up on blood tests anymore and it's not there. Mm. Um, and so God has done very big things yes. in my life. It's awesome. Can we thank Sally for sharing this story? Yeah.